Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name and we look forward to the rest of eternity. We look forward to glory, Lord. In our greatest days here, it is still nothing compared to what we look forward to. In our toughest, most grueling moments, there's nothing to be concerned over compared to the glory that, we, that awaits us. Help us look forward to, to that day, Lord. Help us to hasten its coming. Amen. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 5 if you want to, but I want you to think about movies for a minute. Uh, Tiffany and I were watching a movie a little while ago, and I, and I had that feeling that every once in a while happens where you think, is this movie going to get me to start rooting for sin? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You may not have, and that's even scarier, actually. Um, I don't want to tell you you can't see these movies, including Ocean's Eleven. I don't care if you see Ocean's Eleven or not. There's the board right there. Uh, we were joking earlier today about that being a picture of the elder board. Um, you can go look it up online and decide who's whom. But uh, the movie that I was watching, thankfully, turned out a little different. It was more like Robin Hood. But Ocean's Eleven is an interesting one. It was popular enough to get remade. Uh, later on, a couple years ago, it was remade by not the Brat Pack, or Rat Pack, excuse me, Brat Pack is the 80s, not the Rat Pack, some less famous characters. But the interesting thing with Ocean, Ocean's Eleven, I don't know if you noticed that, if you've ever seen it, but you start rooting for a bunch of thieves to win. Did you ever realize that? There are sometimes stories so captivating, whether it's a movie or something else, that as Christians, we start cheering on the bad guys. Ocean's Eleven is one of those. They're not good guys. They're famous guys, and they're, they're acting, hopefully. Although sometimes, I'm not sure. But we start rooting that they'll win. And granted, it's the big bad casino that's losing, so who cares? But it's amazing how that happens. Or the other movie that popped up there, that one's much more recent, Water for Elephants. We start rooting, and I notice this all the time in storylines at least, where they'll... they'll draw you into the relationship and, and it, if you're not careful you'll realize you'll start rooting for things you would never hopefully root for in real life like a spouse and this, the guy in the background is actually the husband of the lady now it's a little different if you've seen the story it, it's an abusive one but when they start cheating I don't know that, that he at least knows that and they're talking about running away and you get caught up in the story because even if you don't know he's abusive at the time you know he's a jerk and so you get caught up in Hollywood's tale that all of us need to be happy and we need to find our true love. And if we mess up the first time, then, well, just walk away from it. And as a Christian, you sit there and you realize, wait a minute, what am I rooting for? What am I rooting for? And it can be, it can be relationships, it can be thievery, but it can also be a lot of other things. And, and the stories are endless, but it's amazing how many times we realize, if you stop and pay attention, that our world manages to catch us up in a neat story and draw us away from what we should want into the exact opposite of what we say we want. 
Now, again, it's a lot of those, if you watch Ocean's Eleven, at least from what I remember, there's not a whole lot of bad stuff in it. Just recognize that, that hey, wait, this wants me to root on the bad guys and make up your own ending to it where they get caught too, and, and it's all good, and justice wins out. But it's interesting to me because not only does that happen as individuals, but it happens sometimes as churches too, as groups, that we start rooting for and even boasting about sin, and that's... Corinth and 1 Corinthians 5. Now, Pastor Benji referenced this a couple weeks ago when he talked about membership and he got into church discipline and some of you got a little uncomfortable, perhaps. We don't like talking about discipline any more than your kids like talking about discipline back when they were in your house or if they are still in your house. But if you want to hear him do that, it's on, or talk about that, it's online. You can go back. Also, our college group was talking about that. This week, and to scare you, it took me an hour and a half to go through the same chapter on Thursday night with our college, um, and I'm going to go into more detail tonight. <laughs> don't, don't panic. I also went through all of Second Samuel today with our high school group in an hour, so I, I can speed it up some. Hopefully, I don't go too long. Um, but the other thing is, it's Mother's Day, and I figure what better way to, to wrap up Mother's Day than looking at the worst mother ever. In 1 Corinthians 5. If nothing else, ladies, if you're a mom, you should walk away feeling like a wonderful mom after looking at this passage tonight because this lady is horrible. I realize we're going to have some awkward moments tonight. I'm used to handling that with our our youth, so I'm going to jump in and we're going to start at verse 1. We're going to read all the way through, actually, and then we'll go backwards. But um, bear with me. If this makes you uncomfortable because of church discipline or, or the issue that's happening, the reality is this. Again, Sometimes, as churches, we start rooting for things we never should. We start tolerating things we never should. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur, even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief, and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy and an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. That last verse is actually a quote of quite a bit of the Old Testament law, especially in Deuteronomy. When there was sin, it was kick him out. Certain sin, not every sin. Nobody would, would have been left in the city. Go back to verse 1, though. 
1 in the first part of verse 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. There are actually two issues here. One is the man himself, but the other is the church that's rooting for him. That's boasting of him. And throughout this chapter, it's going to kind of bounce back and forth between the two, but really it's going to land mostly on the church's sin. Their failure, more than the, the one guy. But it's interesting there, as, as it talks about it, it says, hey, well, one, I, when I'm referencing it with the youth group, I just go, ooh, that, oh, wow. The Bible, if you've heard me say it before, it's not boring, shocking, yes. Grotesque even sometimes, Definitely repulsive. I mean, not God's word itself, but what's happening in a church. The response for every Christian of all time when they hear this should be kind of a, just, no, pushing away. Not, Not us. Surely we can't have accepted this, much less have done this. And yet that's the reality. It's important to remember, too, what Corinth was like. When, I, when I'm talking with my students about this, I, I reference Vegas, interesting, with Ocean's Eleven up there. But uh, Vegas' big catchphrase is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. If Corinth had it, they'd have taken that and said, that's nothing. What happens in Corinth, we boast about everywhere. That kind of was Corinth. Same actions, but they were proud of it. And you realize then, when Paul is saying, that's the city, when Paul is saying, they don't even do that. The, one of the most liberal of cities, not the only, I mean, <laughs> the whole nation had a, had a tendency to outdo each other, but one of the most you know, liberal in that way of morality cities was looking at the church, you need to re- hear this in it, was looking at the church and saying, wow, that's just weird. A city that didn't really grasp sin at all is looking at the church and saying, well, I guess when you talk about the sin, what you mean, what, sin, when you share the gospel, what you mean is, is, well, you is what you mean. Paul's saying your city's repulsed by you, by this man's actions. They wouldn't accept it. And all of the immorality that was in Rome, in the Roman culture, this would have been something that they would have looked down upon. They were okay with a lot of things, but not this. And what, you're, what you see here, and, and there's a lot of possibility, but the wording means it most, it's the way that the Old Testament would have referenced a stepmom. Probably dad is dead. Hopefully. Not definitively. We don't know that for sure, but probably, because there'd be more drama going on if not. But... A man is acting maritally with his stepmom. And they're proud of it. The other interesting thing here, too, is she probably isn't, again, not, not for sure, but she probably isn't involved in the church at all, which means she's not a believer. So you could imagine if that's the case, this man trying to share the gospel with his stepmom-wife combo. And when he says anything in Scripture, it it wouldn't make sense. We often, by the way, do the same thing. Not not this particular, but trying to share a mixed message where the world is looking at us and saying, well, this is why they accuse us of being hypocrites, actually. 
And there's two people that are living together, one of them a Christian, one who isn't. And they're trying to reach out because they honestly care about this other person. And the the person's saying, but you live just like me. What hope are you sharing with me? What difference would it make? I see none in your life. And they may not verbalize it, but it's the reality. That's his sin. Paul's bigger concern, though, is the proud part. So as a church, why would you boast of that? Why would you be proud of something that's so clearly, and he's not talking about gray areas. This isn't Romans 14. It's not a disputable thing. He says something that God so clearly has spoken against. That Romans 2 says, our heart even tells us is wrong. You don't have to think. The pagans even call it wrong. And yet, you haven't. You've prided yourself upon upon being so free in grace, which comes up later, everything's permissible, so free in grace that you're now condoning sin that God has clearly outlawed and ruled out. He says instead, and he talks about church expulsion. Second part of two. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? I know church discipline scares us, and I know Pastor Benji talked about that a little while ago. And because you got scared, you, you might have tuned him out. <laughs> church discipline is scary. Even if you're okay with it, church discipline is scary for a number of reasons. One is you, th- you think, well, how are they going to react? And two is you think, I-, I hope it never happens to me. I hope you guys have thought that. Has anybody else thought that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand and think we're taking tra- count in the back. or like, hey, let's go find out what the, why they raised their hand. I don't mean that way, but just a, one, I hope I never get there. But two, I don't want to face that. Well, along those lines, the part that Paul's talking about here is the last, and actually it's not even last, it's the second to last. But it's the last and the extreme, and it's the rare step. Church discipline should actually be taking place on a weekly basis around here before you panic and run out the doors and never come back. It's just discipleship. It's you having coffee at Starbucks and talking with another believer about what you've seen in the Word and maybe what because you know they love God's Word, what you've seen in their life that they aren't living out what they've even talked about before. And so you, you remind them, hey, are you sure that's the way... You think you need to be living to honor God. That would be church discipline. Matthew 18. It's the first step. One-on-one. Go talk to the person. And point out the wrong that you see. Again, not Romans 14 disputable matters, but clear scriptural instruction. But you talk to them and you say, I I think you're wandering away a little bit. And I'm not trying to be judgmental of you. I want to love you. I know how much you love God and his word, and you got a little, little blinder on here. And their response is a good one, and they say, oh, you're right. I didn't treat my spouse very nicely the other day, did I? With my students, it'd be this, and we, I do crazily talk about this with them every once in a while. They probably tune me out, and they've never actually heard it. But, but it would look like this, and it's church discipline. It's just discipleship. But it'd be two friends hanging out at the house And as teen males have been known to do every once in a thousand years throughout the history of the world, mom comes in politely and and asks something. And the teenage male responds less than politely, perhaps with a little bit of teenage angst and attitude. 
And mom walks out because it's just not worth fighting today. <laughs> Anybody had that moment? Good, because I'm having it all the time right now, but <laughs> now that I have teenagers. Um, no, it's not that much really. But, um, and then my mom walks out and there's two boys left and they're both Christians. And you know what should happen? Something that never happens, but it should. Where the boy who's a visitor at the house, the guest at the house, turns and he says, you didn't treat your mom the way God tells you to. You need to go tell her you're sorry. Moms, could you imagine what would happen if your teen son, if you were outside the door and you heard that, and then your teen son met you at the door and said, I'm sorry, Mom. I should have shown you better grace through my words. Would you not invite that other boy over every day of your life at that point? (laughs) At least until he blew it and gave you a little bit of attitude himself? That's church discipline. That's the first step is one-on-one. The second step is you go and you find a respected mentor, at least with youth, or respected somebody else in your small group party. Not your best friend that they hate. That's different. That's ganging up. The church discipline will be, hey, you know what? You and I, we're not seeing eye to eye on this, so let's go find a neutral third party who loves God, though. Let's see what they say. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll back off. But if they agree with me, you need to show repentance. So you go through a couple steps. Here is, it's happened at least a couple times. In fact, Paul later on references a letter. We believe that we lost the real 1 Corinthians and that 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. It's confusing, I know. But there's another letter out there that Paul references and, and he implied something's wrong here. You need to take care of it. And they totally misunderstood or refused to deal with it. But they've gone a couple steps and Paul's at the, at the final one now. But this isn't the first step. You're not going to walk in here thinking you're okay someday and the elders are going to meet you at the front, pull you up, on, up here on the platform and say, we're going to discipline you and kick you out of the church today. That is, that is virtually never going to happen. Now, granted, if you just go on a killing spree between one Sunday and the next, might happen. There might be a little discussion that's that quick, but none of you are going to do that. So don't worry about that. That's not what it's talking about. This is the, the rarest step, the last step, but there again, hopefully not the last step because Paul's real desire here and the desire of church discipline is repentance. We'll get to that in a minute. Shouldn't, though, You'd rather have been filled with grief and to put out of your fellowship the man who did this. That's uncomfortable for us. We don't like that thought. But this isn't for a temporary sin. This isn't for a sin that we call agree. Hey, that's sin and I'm struggling to get it out of my life and I'm dependent on Christ. This is sin that we're stubborn in. I refuse to agree with God's clear instruction on this. Now get out of my face. That's, that's the attitude that's being dealt with here. Whatever the presenting sin is, that's really it. It's rebelliousness and stubbornness, refusal to follow God and pay attention to his word. Verse 3, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Quick pause there. I thought Romans 14 says we weren't supposed to judge anybody. In fact... I remember some politicians and some celebrities and some others that did this. There was a president in the 90s that when he got in trouble for moral reasons, I believe, I couldn't find the quote, but you know, Bill Clinton said, Christians, I claim Christ, don't judge me. 
Somebody can look that up. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Pretty sure, though. I remember that. He said, don't judge me. Well, he understood Romans 14, but he wasn't paying attention to the context. It said, no, no, no. That's on things the Bible didn't directly address. When it's sin, clearly, actually, yes. In fact, verse 12, apparently Paul was a Jeopardy fan because it put, he puts it in the form of a question. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So it makes the point at the end in a question. Aren't we? Of course we are. Lovingly, not harshly, if you have no relationship with a person, you're probably not the best one. But in a small group, definitely. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you certainly should. To tenderly and lovingly come along and say, this is what God's word said and I've seen this in your life and you're not, you're not even trying to live by it. Please turn and repent. It's what we see with Nathan, the prophet, and David, the king. David, you're sinning. Stop it. The interesting thing is David wouldn't have been subject to church discipline at that because his response was repentance. You're right. I'm wrong. Helps that he was king. He says, you're right. I'm wrong. And he turns around at that point when confronted. That's verse 3. Paul says, hey, we are to judge each other that way, not in condemnation, but in living by the standard. And he turns next into holiness. Well, at least eventually. Verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in the spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Here's, Here's the actual kicking out. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And that is a fun discussion. <laughs> it's a fun debate. What exactly does that mean? Handed over to Satan. I think it means we're handed over to Satan. Kicked out of the protection of the church body. The direct protection of God. Thrown out to the world. It, and basically it's a, if you want to live the world's way, then fine. Go live the world's way. Have you forgotten how horrible it was? That everything that was a right desire, you missed out on. That it was an unhappy pursuit with zero success long term because you could not find it. And the hope, again, is for a return. It's not a, the hope, there's, there's a big difference here, by the way, from... Uh, and I, I don't want to criticize him too much, but from the Amish shunning concept, Amish shunning is you're dead to me, don't ever come back. They've, they've gotten that wrong if they've gotten it from this. Paul's is not a permanent go away, you're dead to me, I never want to see you again. Paul's is a go away. If that's what you want, fine. I hope being handed back over to that, you'll come to your senses and turn back around to holiness. And God's embrace. But, but it is a handing over to Satan. Interestingly, though, I think, and, 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 and I don't know, again, there is a fun discussion of what exactly does this mean, but there are two words used there. One is physical, handing over physically. One is spiritual. It's kind of interesting. I think it's important that we see, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's important that we see you, this judging, you and I are not condemning someone to hell. This does not call into question God's sovereignty or calling or election. 
This isn't us making necessarily a moral statement on their eternity. It's us making a, a, a guideline observation of their failure to live up to God's standard, to live holy, to even try. We're looking at them and saying, you are trampling the cross, and it is not okay. And if you can't see that or you refuse to recognize it, really, because none of us believe you don't see it, then we're going to hand you over. And, and if that's a little confusing, I, I think the problem with analogies is they all break down. But I used it with the college, and what do they know? But they, you know, they, <laughs> sorry, college, if you hear this. But, um, but they kind of agreed, okay, that, that maybe makes sense. I think it's a little like this. Kids try, but no kid can kick a sibling out of a family. They fight and they call each other's names. And, and they, Well, you're not my brother, but it doesn't do any good because you still are my brother. The only one that really could kick him out would be dad, or if you're a matriarchal family, mom. Fortunately, our Heavenly Father doesn't do that. He holds us securely. I think it's a little more like this. If you had adult kids and an adult brother is at the door of dad's birthday party and he knows that dad hates drunkenness and his younger brother or older brother shows up at the door drunk and he says, you need to go away until you sober up. And when you sober up, please come in and celebrate with us. I think it's a little more along those lines, not a casting into hell, but a, hey, go away until you remember the, the greatness of being dad's kid. And then come back. That's what we want. Come back. I could be wrong on that. But I think that's a little bit closer of a picture. Verse 6 and 7 also, though, says, again, the bigger issue, I think, isn't the one individual, although that's big, but it's the church's acceptance and tolerance of that. Verse 6 and 7 basically says, and go discipline yourself too a little. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul kind of says, you wouldn't celebrate Passover and completely ignore everything that God said about how to worship him through Passover what you're remembering and go and you get old and moldy bread that isn't the right stuff for it and throw it out on the table and say, let's do Passover. So if you're going to celebrate Passover, what you do is you go and you get the unleavened bread and you go through God's clear instructions for how to observe Passover. And that is the issue is there are clear instructions for how to live and neither this man nor their church was following at the time. And they both were falling into sin because of it. And Paul says, come back to where you should. God gave gave clear instructions for sexuality. So live by them. God gave clear instructions, and Paul's going to go through them in 11, 12, 13, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, for worship and orderliness and gifts and serving and who God is and who we are and who we are together. So follow them. Paul says, come back to the boundaries. And you've got to remember the Corinthian church, their issue, unlike Galatians, which Galatians was rules, rules, rules. And Paul says, hey, too many rules. God didn't give you those. 
But Corinth, theirs was, there's no rules. Grace means we can do whatever we want. And Paul says, you're not that free. You're not free to ignore God. That would be a bad plan. You're free to live freely, for sure, Galatians 5.1. But you're not free to throw out God's instruction. That's not okay. Verse 9. I've written you my letter. Again, there's another letter that we, we believe existed that we don't have. I've written you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Probably what happened here, possibly, it could be a couple different forms that it could take, but something along the lines of Paul just saying, hey, don't associate with immoral people or don't associate with sexually immoral people. And Paul is thinking of this man, but you ever have a kid that wasn't really paying attention? <laughs> of course you did. You had, you had a kid or you, you had nieces and nephews or you've seen teenagers or you were a kid. One of those is true. I promise that. And you weren't paying enough attention. Or you heard a loophole that you want to, I can get around it this way. And they did that. And Paul comes back. He says, okay. One, you you ignored what I said. You haven't dealt with it. Two, actually, they went beyond that because he's going to address something else here in a minute. Not only did they tolerate this one guy who Paul was thinking about, but then they turned probably to their city and they started not talking to their city. They stopped sharing the gospel with them. They stopped talking to their neighbors. Paul's like, what? You missed the correcting thing that you're supposed to do, and you went way overboard the other way where you won't have anything to do with Corinth now. What good are you? No more seasoning if you won't talk to them. I didn't mean the world. I meant the guy who's sinning. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. And in that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul says, I didn't call you to a commune or monastery. There's a reason God left us and didn't take us home. He could have. He could have designed everything after we've come to know Christ as a taking to heaven and that being something that woke people up and yet he chose not to. Romans 10 says he left us to go take the gospel to them. No communes, no little huddles. Now, if Santa Maria someday becomes a 100% honestly, completely Christian city, I don't know that he means that all of us have to move away. But there are about 150,000 of us now. I don't know that that's going to happen. Let's shoot for it. That would be amazing. Let's go try. Let's be effective and get the gospel out there that 150,000 people would have heard the truth. But I don't know that there's going to be a 150,000 person Christian commune in Santa Maria ever. It definitely wasn't the case in Corinth. And Paul says, hey, I'm not saying don't associate with them. What I'm saying is this is what church expulsion means. And it gets a little uncomfortable. Continues on. Sorry, I lost my place for a minute. But uh, 11, but now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And he goes through the, the same list. It's not an exhaustive list, either way. Elsewhere, one of the biggest issues for church discipline is divisiveness. But he goes through and he says, you need to not, and he rules out a couple things for sure. Number one, he rules out worship services and, and communion. 
says, no, not, not that. He also, I mean, he didn't use the words, but he also rules out small groups and serving. And he probably rules out your golf date that you have with your small group guys or ladies, your, your time at Panera with the small group ladies or Sunday school ladies. Taco Tuesday. He was ruled out Taco Tuesday with the, with the Sunday school class. Now, he hasn't ruled out sharing the gospel with this person. One-on-one conversations where you, where you continue to say, come back, just repent. We want you back. It's not saying you can't talk to them that way. The interesting one, and this is the tough one. I don't know if I could do this with my kid, and I tend to agree with somebody like Simon Kistemacher. Says, he's talking about the formal ones. He's not talking about starting war with your neighbors, but, um, but that one's a little harder to tell. He could be talking about as far as if you're in a Christian family, you don't even talk to your kid except to share a call to repentance with them. I don't know if I could do that. I love my kids. And yet, it would be love that would be doing that. So it's tough. No, at least on that one, commentators disagree with each other a little bit. But the formal things for sure are out, and the informal formal things. Again, Taco Tuesday. It's not formal. It's not a church-sanctioned event, but we all know it's a church thing. That would be out on this. Because it's meant to say, not a permanent shunning, but it's meant to say, no, you can't have all the benefits of church without living God's way without holiness and repentance when we fail. But it's also not looking at the world and expecting the world to be holy. Paul says, of course they're not holy. They're sinners. That's what they do. They sin. Remember? You were too. You still struggle with it. I think along those lines, it'd be a little bit like this. Paul would would say, and I'm not saying you can't have one of these up, but Paul would say, hey, that, that Prop 8 poster, quit posting it in front of the bay window of your, your gay neighbors. They have no reason to pay attention to God on this. Share the gospel with them first. Instead, how about you pick up the phone and you call your Christian son who's walked away from his wife and tell him to go home? I think that's kind of the difference. And sometimes we jumble that up. If we're not rooting and boasting about sin in, in our church, which hopefully we aren't, we sometimes miss it like they did where we keep trying to and get frustrated by holding the world to God's standards, which there's a degree that we should. But then we're failing to hold ourselves to God's standard, which was Corinth. Paul says, stop it. You're boasting and you're ignoring them and you've got this whole thing mixed up. It's not that you can't call them to the gospel and to repentance, and that's part of it. Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't point out sin to our ungodly neighbors. We should. But sometimes we go about it the wrong way, just like they would, and we shun them even as we're trying to talk to them. And, and yet we're missing behind us the rampant sin that goes on in our own homes, in our own church, that sometimes exists. And Paul says, stop. That's not the point. Don't do that. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And the point is, yes, you are. God's clear command. I had a story I was tempted to share, and, and I didn't bring I was just going to read it. Um, but uh, 
I'll try to summarize it for you. There are so many times we drive away some of our young people from the church. And often we do that off of rules that we've made up. And it's sad. That's sometimes why they're not showing up anymore. Other times it's because they're sinners and they walk away from God. That one we can't do anything about. But the one where we make up rule upon rule upon rule about no plaid in church, God says, what's wrong with plaid? I don't have a problem with plaid. No 70s clothes in church because they were just outright awful. <laughs> 80s clothes, nine, okay, every era has had awful clothes in it. God says, I don't care if they're awful or not. I care if they're modest. God says, that's, that's a rule I gave. Of course, he didn't specify what modesty was. Would have been nice if he'd been a little more particular on it. But, but we make up rules. And the more I point out the rules that we make up, the matter you're going to get. <laughs> because we hold those rules so tightly. Some of you really hate plaid. <laughs> okay, probably not. But <laughs> we hold to that rule tightly, and God says, but you're letting go of the rules that I laid down, like love your neighbor. Quit gossiping. Follow your leaders. He says, and when you ignore my rules and you stand by that stubbornly, you do get judged. In fact, if you do that long enough, eventually the church has a duty to call you out the right way and lovingly. And to say things like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry as a Sunday school teacher, if you've been undermining Pastor Benji, as far as I know, not, this is not happening. So if I land on something that's going out there in the church, forgive me. But And you're undermining Pastor Benji in your Sunday school class all the time. And Pastor Greg, because he's over Sunday school, comes to you and talks with you. And that doesn't work. And so he brings in a couple elders. That doesn't work. And finally, you land up here and we talk to the church and we say, this Sunday school teacher refuses to get off of Pastor Benji's back. And it is not over a scriptural thing. And so we're asking you as the church to challenge him or her, usually him in that one, to stand by the leader and get in line and quit causing divisions. The problem is, as Baptists and as Americans, (laughs) we like our divisions. God doesn't. He's called that out very specifically all the way through Scripture. When you haven't done that, then God says, okay, send them packing with the hopes that they'll return. Because we do judge the world that way. We disciple each other, as Pastor Benji says. We call each other to holiness, because holiness matters. And even sometimes we, as lovingly as possible, send somebody out the doors so hopefully they wake up and return. But, verse 13... God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man among you. I know there's a lot and it's uncomfortable and there's weird topics in there that we don't even want to think about because that's how repulsive it is. And it's church discipline, which we don't want to think about because it's uncomfortable. And in the United States, it produces lawsuits and blogs and things that talk nasty about us. So we don't want to think about it at all. And if it's ever our best friend or even our family that's in the face of it, it's even more difficult to walk through, but holiness matters. God has saved us 
from sinfulness. And he has made us holy. And he is making us holy. He says, I call you to holy lives. Live by my clear commands. And live freely where I haven't commanded. But follow me. He says, live holy. It matters that we live holy. And when we're unrepentant in the face of sin, sometimes it means we have to push someone aside. Tenderly, lovingly, gracefully, as much as possible. After a long process, if at all possible, that is mostly private and only at the last minute turns as public as necessary and no more. And then we send them aside, hopefully, that they would quickly return in repentance. I want to leave you with a little hope. Flip to 2 Corinthians 2. We don't know for sure, but it seems to make sense and more sense than anything else. And, and most pastors I know uh, are pretty convinced. I think Pastor Benji mentioned this too. 2 Corinthians 2.5 has the likely end of the story. It's possible they went, you know, kicking out crazy after this. Is it, it is Corinth after all. <laughs> they might have kicked everybody out of the church, realized nobody was left and, you know, had to go through a bringing backstage. But this is most likely talking about this man. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has no mu- not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Now to put it, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted him by the majority, a little aside there, that means there was a minority that didn't, by the way. The punishment inflicted by the majority, the church, is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and, and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what have I forgiven? If there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And Paul says, I wasn't wronged. You were wronged. God was, was wronged. And he's repentant and he's standing at the door saying, let me back in, please. I know what it's like to be handed over to Satan and I forgot how awful the world was. I was wrong. And that relationship has ended. Can I come back? And Paul says, welcome him back. You think church discipline is difficult, by the way. Wait until they come back and they're sitting in the pew next to you and you've got to deal with your own sin that wants to hold them at a distance still. <laughs> and grace says, welcome them back. Wisely, wisely, depending on what it was, but welcome them back. Celebrate grace together. Enjoy communion together. Take them back to Taco Tuesday and somebody, by all means, buy the man a taco. Because he belongs. Again, we didn't kick him out permanently from the family. He was a brother or sister who lost their way and like the prodigal son, we're celebrating that they've returned. And not like the stubborn, cranky brother who had been around the whole time, but like the father who's rejoicing that they're back, that they're ours, that they, like we, belong to Christ. And that's what we see in Second Corinthians 2. There's hope at the end of a painful story.
Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name for you are worthy. Lord, I, <laughs> I pray that we as a church would be spared the extreme steps of church discipline because we so often enjoy the first step of church discipline of discipleship. Where we love each other enough and have strong enough relationships to come along and say, come back to God's way. Lord, help us to show grace where there needs to be grace. To call the holiness where we need to be holy. To enjoy our freedoms where you have simply said, go live and honor me as you do. And have the wisdom to enjoy each and every part of all of those moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.